This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Scared money don't make money. You are listening to Inside the Tunnel, presented by VT Scoop on 247sports.com. I know, I know, the intro's getting a little old. Bear with me, we're going to create a new one. Quick turnaround from the last podcast of this one. We'll work on that for the next one. If you have any suggestions, feel free to message me. In terms of today's podcast, part one is going to be the Syracuse victory with Chris Arvin. Part two is going to be discussing the new hires, the remaining hires, some attrition, and some questions with Doug. As always, guys, enjoy, and let's kick it off with Chris. All right, we are now joined by Chris Arvin, our basketball insider, joining us after a big win for Virginia Tech as they took down Syracuse in the Carrier Dome. Chris, what did you make of that game last night? You know, right now is the fun time to cover Tech basketball. <laughs> you know, we thought it was going to be a pretty down season, uh, but these freshmen are really balling out, and I, they did that last night too. I mean, Jalen Cohn kind of coming out of nowhere. We knew he had it in him. From what we saw in high school, a four-star player that the coaches were really high on and wanted him to come in early, and we hadn't really seen why yet. Last night showed us why. I mean, just the energy and the excitement and shooting that he brought uh, was pretty incredible. And then, you know, to see some of those other freshmen uh, kind of step up in the, their leadership role, uh, it just goes to show, particularly this season, we have no idea what to expect, but even further – uh, this Virginia Tech team, uh, any player can step up on any given night. Any player can have a bad night any given night. Uh, and so, you know, there will be some ups and downs along the way for sure. But this team is going to be really fun this season. This seems like a bigger win than maybe it should be. Syracuse, not the best of teams. They're also one of the younger teams in the country, not one of the most talented Jim Beheim teams. But when you look at Virginia Tech, they come off a deflating loss to Virginia, who, by the way, somehow lost to Boston College at Boston College. But you have Virginia Tech traveling to the Carrier Dome, one of the toughest places to play. Odell in attendance. I mean, how impressive should we make this game? I mean, it was really impressive. I know Syracuse is down. I know it was the zone. You know, there's a lot of things. But the statistics of this win are just really impressive. Virginia Tech made 21 field goals. 20 of those were assisted. The only one that wasn't assisted was the Landers Nolly fast break after he stole the ball. Uh, you know, you have a, a freshman leading the team in scoring. Uh, you have uh, Beattie, who everybody's down on. We can talk about him later. But uh, just really shutting down 
who he was on both halves. First half, he was on Elijah Hughes, and Hughes really didn't do much of anything. Uh, and it was Gerard who was stepping up. Second half, he was put on Gerard, and Gerard, I think, got three points in the second half. Uh, and after BD was taken off of Hughes, he ended up getting, I think, 15 points. He may have had all 18 in the second half. I mean, he really was not very effective in the first and really effective in the second. Uh, and that was all because BD was guarding him and taking that away. Uh, and so just his performance defensively, but even on the offensive end, just really impressive. Uh, I mean, you, you can look so many ways, but the fact that Virginia Tech is a, a live or die by the three team and they shot 27%, which should be an instant death, and they got the victory, uh, just really, really impressive to me. Performances from guys like Wabisa Beattie. Maybe you don't see him too much in the stack column with his two points, but he does have eight assists. He's playing lockdown defense, two steals, uh, guarding one of the key members of Syracuse. And and again, you know, this is a team that not only lives and dies by the three, but lives and dies by Landers Nolly. And yes, he had 13 points, but he shoots one for 11 from the three point range. Who are some of the other guys, you know, outside Nolly, outside Jalen Cohn, which we can get to a, a little bit later, uh, that stepped up for Virginia Tech? I mean, Tyrese Radford, he he will always uh, kind of go under the radar, but his performance was really incredible. I actually thought this was not going to be a great matchup for him. I thought the zone would kind of limit how he slashes through uh, the lane really late to get those offensive rebounds and that he wouldn't be able to perform, but... Man, he seven points, nine rebounds. Uh, just how well he rebounds as a guard is pretty astounding, especially for someone who came in to Virginia Tech as a complete unknown. Uh, just the way that he's been playing has been really good. Uh, Hunter Couture, you know, really didn't have a great night. It was one of seven, uh, but still battled, still was diving around, still was all over the court. You have someone like uh, Naheem Aline, who has really struggled the past few games. Uh, he went two of six from behind the arc, uh, and he was actually the one that came out because of how well Cohn was playing. But uh, I saw a little bit more in him last night than I had seen in the previous games, and so that was that was exciting. Uh, and then P.J. Horn. You know, P.J. Horn is another one uh, the fan base is really down on, and, you know, Part of it I can understand, but he was perfect from the floor uh, outside of his three-point shots. I mean, the guy just sneaks behind defenses, gets in the right spot, uh, did a pretty good job against some taller Syracuse players, especially uh, when he was going at them uh, on defense. And so uh, I know Jalen Cohn is going to get a lot of the accolades, rightfully so. I mean, really incredible performance. Uh, but this this truly was a team win, uh, the way that Virginia Tech got it done. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because as much as we want to highlight Jalen Cohn, you know, it was a lot of these other guys stepping up. And, I, you know, I was really impressed because in the beginning of the game when you're watching it, the first half and maybe the first 10 minutes of the second half, you're looking at Virginia Tech, at least offensively, and they're not moving the ball around too well, just kind of passing around the perimeter, not really looking at the middle of the key. And maybe because they only had one day to prepare for Syracuse, maybe that's why. But seeing a guy like 
Tyrese Radford, who really just doesn't really care what you think of him, doesn't really care what's in front of him. You know, all that size in the paint for Syracuse, he was just willing to go up on the boards and and just leap over guys and use his length to get some of the boards. So really impressed by him. But we do got to bring up Jalen Cohn, obviously a guy that was a four-star recruit and I think had very, very high expectations and maybe hasn't matched those until last night. But what's a reasonable expectation and how much do you think that this performance just shooting over Syracuse from beyond the arc, how much do you think that helps his development moving forward, maybe giving him a little bit more confidence? Yeah, I mean, up to this point, he was the best shooter in the ACC and he wasn't taking a crazy amount of shots, but he's shown that he can be a shooter. And so to do that on a stage uh, like he did last night was really impressive. I think the thing that he needs to kind of get under control is his turnovers. Uh, And he only had one last night. It was uh, right after he should have taken a shot and decided not to and thought he could get fancy and dribble around people and he couldn't. Uh, he probably should have had another one of BD's turnovers. Uh, you know, BD eight assists, three turnovers. Really, really good stat line, especially against someone like Syracuse. But uh, one of those turnovers probably should have gone to Cone because Cone gave him the ball in the middle when he was surrounded by three people, and there was no way BD could do anything with it. You know, sometimes the stats are a little deceiving in that way. But just to see what he did, to see how well he shot, for a freshman to come in and have the swagger to carry the team. Uh, you know, and we're not talking about somebody that's been getting the accolades with Landers and Ollie. We're not talking about somebody who's had a game like this this season. Uh, so to come in kind of cold, not being able to show people, just really impressive. And, and I think it really showcased why at the beginning of the season when we kind of do those previews, which really don't mean anything because it's, it's incredibly difficult to project out. But that's why I had him as a double-digit scorer this season. I mean – he has so much talent, especially offensively. He's actually good getting to the rack, but he hasn't shown that yet because his outside shooting has just been phenomenal. I mean, teams can get in front of him all they want, but the, with how high he jumps, with how long he, he's in the air, I mean, I, I get he's 5'9", but the way he's going about it has just been really impressive. And, you know, it's just a huge spark. So it's only one game. I don't think people should expect this every night, uh, but – we finally saw him do really well with BD on the court and they both understood their roles and they did, I mean, they did what Virginia tech fans will want to see. And so uh, definitely don't get too carried away, but uh, there's no way you can come away with that with anything other than excitement. It, it seems like Virginia tech has lost a lot of the games. They probably should have lost and maybe stolen a couple. You think of Michigan state, maybe the Syracuse game, but overall, how would you evaluate just, how well Mike Young's unit has been playing. Yeah, I don't think you can look at it any other way than far exceeding expectations. I mean, the fact that people are still bringing up the NCAA tournament, uh, like that's a like that's a normal thing, uh, is beyond. It's my, crazy. <laughs> my, my thought process. Yeah, like I, I just I still don't really understand how that's a conversation, and I don't think Virginia Tech gets there. But I mean, the team is so young. It. Where you thought that there would be freshman lapses, there haven't been. You know, you see it every now and again, but it's not the whole team. It's just a few players, and the other players are picking them up. And so I I don't think this team makes it, but this team has every reason to make it because of that because they don't know that they shouldn't be beating these people, and they don't know how hard playing on the road in the ACC is supposed to be. And, they, you know, 
they have every reason to go in and say, we're already doing better than we should be. Why aren't we better than you? You know, I'm going to make you prove it. So uh, this team has just, just been blowing me away. And the, the fact that Mike Young has got them so organized and, and together. And, uh, I mean, you could see Frazier coaching them up on defense and timeouts. The way the defense has responded and with how nervous they were about defense. the, the big, In the offseason, they were talking about, you know, they thought they were going to have to outscore people and that it really wasn't going to be defensive oriented. It was going to be shootouts. Well, because, I mean, the offensive talent, you can see it everywhere. You have Cone, you have Nolly, you have Aline, you have Couture, you have these shooters everywhere. P.J. Horn, perfect fit for this system. Well, the defense has kind of been what's carrying the day, especially against a team like Syracuse. So for them to kind of turn that around and play defense as well as they have been and still have these shooters uh, who are doing really well. Uh, I, I'm just really impressed by by Mike Young. If if anyone's still not on on his bandwagon, I don't know what it'll take to get you there. And you know, it's just I don't think anyone could have even remotely expected this year long. Probably Mike Young included. I mean, just a really really incredible performance so far. Um, and then just offensively, I know it's going to be the Landers Nolly show, the Nolly trolley. You know, he's going to get his looks. He has the green light anytime he wants to shoot the ball. Really, anyone does. But uh, I am excited to see performances like this out of Jalen Cohn, you know, Hunter Couture when he gets going from beyond the arc and PJ Horn getting some baskets in as well. It, it's nice to see when it's a more well-rounded effort from the group. But heading forward into NC State this weekend. Can Virginia Tech make it two in a row? That's a good question. Uh, you know, NC State has a pretty major injury right now with C.J. Bryce. Uh, I haven't seen that he's going to be back, and so that'll be a pretty big loss. But this is still uh, a per- perimeter-oriented team. You have Markel Johnson, who Virginia Tech fans are, are keenly aware of because of how they recruited him, but he's having a really good season. 13 points a game, seven assists, five rebounds. Uh, you have Devin Daniels, who I can't remember. I feel like he transferred in. I don't really know much of his story, but he's shooting close to 40%, averaging 12 points a game. Uh, Jericho Helms was a recruit that Virginia Tech was going after, ended up going there. Braxton Beverly, uh, he's only averaging uh, eight points a game, which is kind of astounding because he's just such a good shooter. Another another player that's averaging uh, uh, nearly 40 points or 40% from behind, behind the arc. So uh, NC State has a lot of talent, uh, but in classic NC State fashion, they're extremely inconsistent as well. And so will we get a team that comes in and shows off how much talent they have, or will we get a team that comes in and gets a little nervous on the road and doesn't really know how to operate? Uh, NC State can go both ways, and so it'll be really interesting to see. Daniels is a transfer from Utah. So a good player in that Beverly shooting 39.3% from three and 39.1% overall. So maybe he's just chucking up threes. Um, but I can see him as the type of player that comes into Castle Coliseum and is scoring 18 points off of six, three pointers, six for six. He seems like that type of player. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really don't think you can, can make too much of a big deal about how terrible NC State was last year and what people are calling the worst college basketball game of all time. <laughs> you know, and I know it's a different coach, but you know there's no way they've forgotten that. And so it would not surprise me to see them come out with some fire and 
Virginia Tech not have the same fire because there's only two people who were in that game last year. So uh, I probably will will expect a Virginia Tech loss. But again, this team is so surprising and you never know uh, what will happen with injuries. So uh, I'll see how I feel closer to Friday. But uh, I think it should be a fun game, especially an offensive oriented game. Virginia Tech doesn't slow down quite as much at home. Uh, and they like to let it fly a little bit more. And so the offensive firepower between these two teams uh, should be pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up last year's game because that was like historically bad. But this one shapes up to be a little bit better than that inside Castle Coliseum. Virginia Tech only losing to Duke at home. So this should be a really fun matchup. And stay tuned to Chris's article coming out later this week. We'll be previewing the NC State Virginia Tech game given our predictions on it. But Chris, anything else to add before we let you go? I don't think so. You know, I, uh, you know what? I say that and then I was about to add something. So yeah, I will <laughs> add something. But, uh, you know, I just, I want to remind everyone, this is such a young team. And so I think it's a little bit easier to get harder on some of the veterans. And uh, I don't think Virginia Tech would be in the position they are without them. So I know how easy it can be to look down on a BD or a Horn or some of these guys who have been around. But uh, the fact that Virginia Tech has 11 wins so far, uh, there really shouldn't be too much to be upset about. So I know uh, it can be hard in the moment, but the way Virginia Tech has exceeded expectations, uh, a large part of that has to go. Uh, from the leadership uh, of some of these veteran guys. And uh, I don't want them to get uh, tossed under the bus too much. And, and I know people on the board probably already think I'm a huge BD defender and, <laughs> and I think he's incredible. And you know, it's not even that, but uh, just the, how good of a defender he is, how little he turns the ball over while getting a high rate of assists. Uh, you know, I, I just hate to see a player that's performing well get thrown under the bus so much. And Horn, you know, he did have a bad stretch from three, but he's doing well. And so they're still trying to figure it out, too. I know they're leaders, but compared to compared to how much they've played against uh, how much juniors have played on other teams, they're still relatively young because uh, of how much time uh, Buzz Williams gave them. So, uh it's just a just a really incredible team so far, and the fact that we're even having a conversation of how good they are and how how much we're performing uh, above expectations just shows uh, the type of leadership that they've had. Awesome stuff, Chris, as usual, and we will be talking to you again shortly. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Hey, it's Matei from the future. Are you listening? Okay, look. That's the end of part one. Basketball's over. Take a deep breath. Ah, feel better? All right, all right. Enough of future Mate. Let's hop back in the past. Let's talk some Hokies football. I just like using these transitions. What can I say? All right, let's jump back into it. All right, everyone. We have a huge Wednesday. Massive hire for Virginia Tech. We could not wait to share the news. Second podcast this week. Bill Turlink is a hokey dog. Yeah, and uh, it was a big win. It was a big Wednesday. I think most people will be listening to this thing Thursday or after Wednesday, but a uh, huge Wednesday coming off a huge Tuesday night basketball win. So a couple busy 24 hours in Virginia Tech sports. 
Yeah, really good 24 hours for Virginia Tech sports. Little bit of an introduction to Bill Tierlink. He is the new co-defensive line coach. He coached at Illinois State. That's where he met Justin Fuente when he was the offensive coordinator in 05 and 06. Then he moved on to the Indianapolis Colts. He went to Nevada for a few seasons, and he was at the Bills most recently. His father is a longtime assistant defensive line coach. He coached for over 30 years in the NFL, won three Super Bowl rings, one of the most decorated assistant coaches in NFL history. His son, Bill, now at Virginia Tech, eight years of NFL experience. Yeah, his, his dad's Wikipedia literally... I know it's Wikipedia, but and anybody can edit this in there, but it literally says people regard him as the greatest defensive line coach of all time. So this is kind of like if if you consider Bud Foster as the greatest defensive coordinator in college football history, it'd be like hiring his son. Um, so pretty good hire, I'd say, as far as of all the options out there, if you're going to replace somebody like Charlie Wiles, after 24 years to go get somebody who is one of, you know, 32 defensive line coaches in the NFL. There's not a whole lot of people that have that job title. Um, and, to, and to get one of them to come to Virginia Tech, I think that's a big get for Justin Fuente. Yeah, it's not every day that you see an NFL guy, you know, willingly take the exact same spot at the college <laughs> level. So uh, really cool to see that from, Bill Turlink and Virginia Tech. Doug, question for you. Obviously, a lot of people are are gravitating towards this hire. They see the NFL. They see he worked with the Bills. He worked with some big names while he's with the Indianapolis Colts. But how does he help Virginia Tech as soon as next year? Clearly, as a defensive line coach in the NFL, you know, Fuente called him the best in the business as far as coaching the defensive line in the press release that they released today. Uh, was a defensive line coach for one of 32 teams in NFL, one of the 12 to lead a defense that went to the playoffs this year. And I think in the NFL, if you don't have a good defensive line, you're not going to have much success. So clearly you can coach. And, and that's really probably been the area over the last two years if you think back to 2018 after Trayvon Hill and how Sean Gaines get hurt and get kicked off the team and Ricky Walker's hurt Vinnie Mahoda's hurt um, you think back to the struggles of that year and then you also think about just how much of a question mark the defensive tackle position was coming into this year and if you really think about it the defensive end position is the next biggest question mark heading into 2020. So it's a huge opportunity to get a defensive line coach who, you know, you could reasonably argue they had one of the top 12 defensive lines in the NFL. And now he comes in and coaches a position of need where Virginia Tech absolutely needs a ton of help there immediately. This isn't a high, this isn't a hire that it will help theoretically with recruiting two to three to four years down the road. But this is a hire that can develop and make the players that Virginia Tech currently has better. I know one concern that a lot of fans have about the move is why would he come to Virginia Tech? Why take the same exact position? 
on a college campus where you have to recruit, you have to work with younger kids. And I think there's a few reasons that he made this move. The first is, like you said, there's 32 coaches on the defensive line in the NFL. It's an extremely competitive position. And I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room in order to get a bigger job at Virginia Tech, coaching the defensive line, getting the opportunity to maybe coach guys uh, a little bit easier. You're not refining pro technique. You're taking high school kids and really teaching them how to be a college player, a good college player, and maybe instill a few things that can translate into one day if they're a really good prospect that maybe they have that chance in the NFL. Regardless, it's a different opportunity. He's worked in the college ranks before. He'll have an opportunity to to coach guys maybe more willing to learn. Um, and it's, you know, it's a different situation. It allows him that opportunity to work up the totem pole a little bit. Um, another concern with him is recruiting, right? He's only worked at Nevada and Illinois State, hasn't worked at the Power Five level. So how is he going to make an impact on the defensive line? I think what we've seen out of this last recruiting class, bigger, longer guys, guys from Texas, guys from Georgia, really SEC country, where you're getting guys that you want to bring and bulk them up and and play big, you know, six foot six guys, six four, two hundred and fifty plus pounds. Uh, I think he's a guy that really can resonate with that playing, you know, with NFL type talent. Um, and you look at some of the targets uh, that Virginia Tech has been recruiting, guys like Peyton Page out of North Carolina, five-star guy. You know, he doesn't really identify with the Charlie Wiles wheelhouse. He's 6'3", over 300 pounds at defensive tackle. Naquan Brown, a guy that's getting offers from everyone all over the country. He's right out of Virginia Tech's backyard in the 757. Uh, a guy like Landon Watson, who now wants to come to Virginia Tech and join that Texas to Virginia Tech movement. I think anytime you have a guy uh, like Tierlink that can just walk into a high school and command respect, it's going to be a good thing for Virginia Tech. Yeah, you think about how the recruiting is going to be set up there. He's not going to – he'll have his own territory once they figure that all out. But as far as recruiting the defensive line specifically, that'll be that'll – be, split basically between whoever that territory's recruiter is and then he's essentially the 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 co-recruiter but you know he's just the guy that comes in and says like this is this is what i've done i coached in nfl for this many years i coached ed oliver from who's the number nine overall pick on this bills team i coached dwight sweeney and robert uh robert mathis for the colts um if you come to Virginia Tech, I can get you to the NFL. Daryl Tapp, I'm sure, will be involved in those conversations as well. But where where his NFL, where he's going to be able to leverage his NFL experience is going to be in tandem with another recruiter. So, you know, I don't think certainly you're going to want to judge him based on what he's doing in whatever territory he ends up happening. But also, he's going to have help in all those targets you mentioned in Texas, you've got Lechtenberg down there in Virginia. You know, I don't really know who's recruiting Virginia right now, um, but they'll get that all figured out. So um, I, I think as far as 
as far as what he can do for defensive line recruiting, it's it's not the relationship building over years and years that he's going to be most valuable with. It's going to be coming in and showing players that he can get them to the NFL at Virginia Tech. Overall, I'm just very excited that hosting official visits, you walk into his office. Maybe he splits it with Daryl Tapp. Maybe they're splitting an office. But whether you talk to Tierlink or you're talking to Tapp, you're talking to one guy that coached in the NFL for ages and one guy that played in the NFL for ages. But when you look at Bill Tierlink, you have to bring in Daryl Tapp because they're both going to be sharing the defensive line. So knowing that these two guys are going to be coaching that one position group, how do you see the outlook on that? You know, I think Daryl Tapp is a, he's obviously a Virginia Tech legend. People think very highly of him as a coach and going forward, but he's also a very inexperienced coach. He's never been a position coach. He's never recruited, never done any of that. There's optimism that he picks it up quickly, but I think hiring Tierlink as a co-defensive line coach is the title. I think Tierlink's going to be the lead defensive line coach, essentially. Tap will Tap will be able to add his expertise and coach and focus on the defensive ends and that kind of thing. But I think when you're bringing in a guy who has NFL experience as a defensive line coach, he's going to lead the way. It's a great mentor opportunity for Tap in terms of bringing him along. And you could, this is getting way far ahead of yourself, but you can, you could see a situation three or four years down the road where tier link moves on, moves, becomes a, you know, a, defensive line coach somewhere else at a bigger program or a defensive coordinator. You know, I think a lot of this, a lot of his move you touched on, why would he come back to the NFL? I think he probably has eyes. He's 41, comes back to the NFL, gets P5 experience as a defensive line coach, can probably bump up to defensive coordinator from there pretty quickly and then a potentially a head job. So going back to tap, I think there's a situation three or four years down the road where Tier link moves on and you have the replacement ready-made and Daryl Tapp who takes over full-time. The last point I saw on the move is why move Bill Tierlink and Daryl Tapp to the defensive line? That not that a little bit of overkill? You're bringing in a guy with all this NFL experience and he's the co-defensive line coach. I think when you look at the big picture of this Virginia Tech football team and you look at Justin Hamilton, who was just brought in to follow in the footsteps of Bud Foster, everyone expects that 2020 is going to be this big year, that the defense is returning all these guys minus Reggie Floyd, that they're expected to do big things. So when you look at all these guys on the defense and, and moving a guy like Adam Lechtenberg to running backs coach, it opens up another spot anywhere on the on the assistant side. So putting a guy like Bill Terlink and Daryl Tapp, Tracy Clays, Justin Hamilton, and whoever the defensive backs or cornerbacks coach is going to be, you're just surrounding Justin Hamilton with four other assistant coaches that when they're going into game prep, when they're going into recruiting meetings and identifying what they need to do as a defense as a whole, you're bringing in the best collective minds you can find on the market. Yeah, I think we talked a lot about Justin Hamilton's inexperience a couple years ago. I mean, a couple weeks ago when he was hired, but now they've surrounded him. Talked talked about Bud Foster's probably continued involvement there, bringing Tracy Clays as a linebackers coach with tons of experience, and you bring in Tierlink, who 
has the NFL experience. He's coached a number of years in college as well. And then he grew up going around football. He grew up learning from his dad, all that. So I think as far as experience goes, you feel comfortable with what he brings to the table and helping Hamilton. Um, and I think pairing him and Tap, in addition to that, I think it, I think I'd mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but as, if there's one position group on the defense that going from, you know, average to good or good to great has the biggest impact, it's the defensive line. It's being able to control the line of scrimmage is far more important than having good safety play or good linebacker play. If you can dominate on the defensive line, the rest of the defense will fall into place and take care of itself. So I think particularly considering how the last two years have gone and what 2020 was looking like with the defensive end play after this year, I think Justin Fuente decided that that was the number one position group, both defensive end and defensive tackles that they had to get right this off season. And I think with Tierlink coming from the NFL Teaming with Tap, a former Virginia Tech player who played for years in the NFL, is just beginning his coaching career. But obviously, a lot of people are excited about him. I think this is Fuente's attempt to solve that problem. Let's change gears a little bit. I do want to briefly talk about the defensive backs coach. A lot of people are asking this question on Twitter, on the board. There's not too much <laughs> there, unfortunately. You got uh, nothing? Don't have too much. Uh, Christian Parker, a guy that works for Green Bay. I uh, believe he's from your native Richmond, Doug. I, I, I actually think he went to my high school. So deep run Wildcats where Wildcat pride runs deep. I think Whit Babcock needs to break out the checkbook and pay this guy whatever he's looking for. Well, whatever they offered him, he allegedly said no. He's a guy that uh, played for Richmond, uh, coached at Notre Dame, uh, is a quality control coach for Green Bay. I think he's he might be – I think Notre Dame is looking at him as a defensive backs coach, possibly. Um, so, you know, I don't blame him at all for looking for bigger opportunities. Um, another name that's been mentioned is Ryan Smith, a defensive backs coach from JMU. Uh, he played at William and Mary, Virginia tie, uh, along with JMU. Uh, he, he coached at UTSA. So the Texas tie, uh, coached at Penn state as a graduate assistant, Elon. So he's a guy that he's very young, mid thirties, a guy that has connections to Hamilton. They know each other pretty well, even though they've never coached together. Um, but he's a guy that could be brought in and, and, would be a different type of addition to the staff. I, you know, I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Tierling that we don't, you know, we're not really sure who's recruiting Virginia right now. And, you know, TAP is clearly going to be involved in the 757. And now you're talking about hiring a deep run kid who went to Richmond and coached at William Mary or JMU quarterback coach who played at William Mary. So it's clearly, they're looking for Virginia recruiting ties with this hire, which probably rounds it out. Smith, you know, given that we're now into the second week of January, either they've had somebody lined up for weeks and weeks 
and they're just waiting for their season to end, which would indicate they're still playing, which JMU plays, I think it's Friday. Yeah. Um, and the national championship. national championship game. So that would line up there if, if you're just waiting on his season. And um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see there. You know, as far as a cornerback coach, they're clearly looking for somebody who recruits Virginia. And, and when you're talking about uh, Christian Parker, who's at the beginning of his career, Ryan Smith, who's at the beginning of his career largely, I think they're looking for a guy on the younger side as well. Yeah, so I think with this hire, there's already, you know, you have Daryl Tapp, you have your NFL experience with Justin Hamilton as well, being a former player in the NFL, Daryl Tapp, uh, Bill Tierlink, a guy that's coaching the NFL, Tracy Clay's a guy just with ample experience and a, a Jerry Kill guy, so in Jerry Kill we trust. Uh, but the last guy I think that they're targeting, you know, like you said, has to be a guy that's recruiting Virginia. And I think what's interesting about this, I don't know if it's going to be Ryan Smith. I, I have a hunch it's going to be. Um, I mean, look at Bill Tierlink. He he coaches on Saturday, last Saturday, resigns Sunday, goes through the HR process Monday, maybe Tuesday, and is announced Wednesday. So I think if you're if you're looking for a timeline on a coach, whether it's Ryan Smith or someone else, maybe still, uh, you know, figuring things out. Uh, you know, if it is Ryan Smith, coaches on Friday, maybe goes through the HR process over the weekend or on Monday, and, and, and an announcement could be as soon as next week. Yeah, you know, I think we we don't know about much about the beloved hr process he might be he might be going through it right now and just waiting to get to the end of the year um i think you know i think it's highly likely that smith considering the timeline it's gotta be either still playing or still coaching so because his team's still playing so that's either that's either the guys coaching in the national championship game at the fcs level the guys coaching in the national championship game at the <laughs> FBS level, which I don't think Virginia Tech's going to get anybody from Clemson or LSU and or somebody from the NFL. Christian Parker made a lot of sense as a quality control type level guy coming back to college. So you're basically looking at like JMU's cornerback coach, that kind of level coach or a quality control coach, unless Justin Fuente can pull a beer tier, Bill Tierlink again and get a defensive a current quarterbacks coach to come back. But I don't think that's very likely to do that twice. So, um, you know, I think as far as the timeline, all signs point to Smith. And I think as far as who's available right now, that seems like a decent hire is if you're looking for somebody to recruit Virginia. The last thing I want to touch on before we move on from this topic Pearson Prelo, we talked about him as a guy that was going to slot in right away to cornerbacks coach. Probably made the most sense out of anyone uh, of these hires that we've seen so far on the defensive side. Uh, a guy that was at Virginia Tech at the director of player personnel position, which has you know constantly been promoted to some type of staff position. Uh, but he was a guy that was able to get experience recruiting. Uh, he has family in the area. And I think 
partially the reason why he wasn't announced as a coach is because the toll it takes going on the road recruiting. He has a good job where he's at right now. He gets to stay on campus. He doesn't have to do, you know, he doesn't have to interact with 17, 18 year olds. He has his own kids to worry about and own kids about to uh, go to college soon. So I think that's the biggest reason why that he did not accept that position or maybe told Virginia tech, Hey, I'm just, I don't, I'm not that interested. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, he's a guy who played in the NFL for, I think it was 10 years or something. Clearly made a little bit of money doing that. So, you know, he's not exactly chasing the $200,000 salary that a cornerbacks coach is going to get. Um, I think, He's just now, you touched on, has got a pretty good gig to, you know, be a defensive assistant, essentially, in Blacksburg without having a recruit. Goes out on the road a little bit to get his feet wet. I think he can continue to gain experience in that role if he wants to, if he wants to go further down that road in the future. Um, I'm sure he can, he has the resume to probably get attention anywhere. So I think... I think he's a guy that probably needs a little more experience, especially when you consider the rest of the guys that Virginia Tech's hired. Daryl Tapp, no experience. Justin Hamilton, very little experience. Um, especially if Hamilton's going to keep the safety, the safety's position, I think you want a guy with at least a little bit of coaching experience on the field, coaching the cornerbacks. Yeah, and a good problem to have regardless a guy like Pearson Prelo is going to be around when recruits come to campus. He's going to be coaching things that he learned in all his time in the NFL. So it's really just about being close to his family in the New River Valley. And um, honestly, great gig for him. Gives him something to do post-playing days. Uh, anything else to add on defensive backs, coach? No, I think the one thing is that it's – one of the reasons is it's important that they get somebody with coaching experience is Farley and Waller are coming back next year, but Farley's probably in all likelihood gone after this, after 2020 and Waller will be eligible to go. He seems like a guy who would stick around for a senior year and be the number one cornerback for a year, but he also might declare depending on what happens. So you're going to need a quarterback coach to develop the next guy's the next guy or guys after Farley and Waller, whether that's Armani Chapman, any of the guys that they've recruited that redshirted this year, anybody coming in in the next you know, year or two, they've got to get development out of the guys behind Farley and Waller over the next 12 months, basically. Yeah, and maybe it's not fair to compare some of those depth guys to all ACC-type players and Jermaine Waller and Caleb Farley, but... You know, getting a guy like Armani Chapman may be a little more comfortable with the position. Uh, Nadir Thompson, see what he can do. Uh, just, you know, get a few of those guys ready to be in the position to take over eventually. Uh, but moving on, let's talk about some attrition because there was some big news out of Virginia Tech this week. Um, some unsurprising news. But Deshaun McLeese, <laughs> I think not surprising that he's leaving the program he was slated to enter his sixth sixth year at Virginia Tech. <laughs> I only stayed four years. You stayed four years. I mean, I, six is a is I, a lot. 
I, I, I wrote this in my, my article uh, this week, but like, if you know people who stayed their super, super senior year, their redshirt senior year, just as regular students, their fifth year in Blacksburg, you're basically over it. Um, whether you're staying in an extra semester or full extra year, that fifth year in Blacksburg is completely different than your first four years. The guys that you came in with, the guys that you spent your first four years with are, are gone. <laughs> now you're coming back for a sixth year on top of that. Um, seems like a little overkill. Not surprised that, take away the football standpoint, not surprised that he's ready to move on. Honestly, I don't blame Deshaun McLeese whatsoever for declaring for the 2020 NFL draft. You look at a lot of these running backs leaving. McLeese probably won't get drafted realistically. But when you look at a lot of the guys that go to the NFL, they're not redshirt seniors. They're not sixth year seniors. Why waste another year at some other university? He has his degrees. He has everything he could have gotten out of Virginia Tech. Now it's about seeing... Will this work? Will this next adventure work in the NFL? Do I have a chance? Maybe I get signed as an undrafted free agent, and you never know. There's always stories like that. But when you're looking at these running backs, they're typically not the guys that have endured all this wear and tear from college and have an absurd number of carries. So maybe the best time is now for McLeese if he ever wants a shot at the NFL. Just looking back at his life, legacy what he was able to accomplish he's clearing out his locker nameplate gone won't put on that jersey again went out with a bang though in the bowl game unfortunately fell short to Kentucky but I mean when we look at Deshaun McLeese what do you think people will remember from him he is a hundred percent Mr. December for Virginia Tech he is (laughs) he is Mr. Bowl game um Three bowl games in his career. The Belt Bowl in 2017, he put up 124 yards against Oklahoma State. Military Bowl against Cincinnati in 2018, 102 yards. Belt Bowl again this year against Kentucky, 126 yards. So it's three times he's over the century mark in three bowl games. Um, pretty darn good in the bowl games, I think. I, th- I think Virginia Tech, if they ate, if they have a bowl game player of the year award for the program, I think it should now be called the Deshaun McLeese award. Um, so that those were his biggest performances. And I think it's just a, you know, is it a coincidence that he somehow ripped off three 100 yard games and three straight bowl games? I don't know, but um, I think, I think that's what people are going to remember him for as far as, as far as legacy at Virginia Tech is, is what he what he was able to do in December in bowl games um, on the ground. Yeah, and I'm sure he won't be remembered as one of the best running backs that ever graced Virginia Tech. There's a long list of great running backs, but in terms of Deshaun McLeese, and uh, it's kind of a bittersweet ending. It's it's nice to see him attempt to achieve his dreams. You know, if not, he has multiple degrees, and you know he's ahead of a lot of other people his age, but. You know, he's a guy that even though he tested the NCAA transfer portal, he was a leader of that offense. And there's a lot of young guys right now 
And and you see him littered throughout the offensive line at wide receiver, running back room, tons of freshmen, Hendon Hooker in his first season starting as the quarterback. You know, they all looked up to a guy like Deshaun McLeese, and he did a good job of rallying the troops. And I think part of his legacy should be the leadership that he portrayed while he was in Blacksburg. Yeah, I saw his tweet today. I think it was Wednesday afternoon. I think he it was the picture that the running backs took. Um, and he said something like passing the torch or something. So clearly this isn't like he's going out on bad terms because Kashawn King is taking his taking his role or something like that. He's supportive of those guys. I'm sure he was a big influence on King this year in particular. will probably be going forward. Um, I'm just happy that, you know, I talked about the bowl games, but in particular the fact that he was healthy all year this year probably helps. Now he went through so many injuries his first three or four years where he wasn't playing a full season. He was, he wasn't playing most of a season. You know, he was banged up for like three straight years. And I'm sure that played a factor in him not coming back, but it was also good, you know, to see him play a full 2019 where he played every single game and and, it didn't get banged up. So um, I'm sure, I'm sure he would have felt like he didn't get what he, what he bargained for had he spent, you know, four or five years in Blacksburg missing half, half seasons basically every year, but good that he was able to stay healthy enough for a full season sticking on the running backs from the outside looking in you see the top or the leading rusher for virginia tech leaving entering the nfl draft then you're left with Keyshawn king who you know had 300 or so yards and a bulk of them came in one game uh but looking at the rest of the room you bring in a guy like khalil herbert a Kansas transfer, a guy that really had a few performances where he just absolutely broke off. You bring in a guy like Marco Lee, 5'11", 225, out of the Juco ranks, a bruiser, something the room was missing. You have Taj Gary, Jalen Holston, maybe Caleb Stewart, maybe Darius Wheatley, and who knows on Colton Beck, Cole Beck might be moving to track. Doug, what should the expectations be for the running back room next year? You lose McLeese, can it get better? Yeah, I think it's, I think even we just talked positively about McLeese and what he did for Virginia Tech, and I think that's that's fair, but I think it's also fair to say that Virginia Tech's probably going to have an upgraded room, upgraded running back room in, in 2020, talking about Kashawn King as a guy this year who, was limited mostly because he's a 180-pound, 18-year-old freshman playing in college football for the first year. Get him in the weight room this this offseason. I think that's one of the big stories of this offseason when, you know, when, like, Hokie Sports updates the the weights a couple times each offseason and people freak out, that's going to be the number one guy that they're looking at this year because I think he's got a real opportunity as a, as a true sophomore to become the number one back. You talk about pairing him with Herbert, who you touched on. He's a bigger, short running back, I guess. He's a little <laughs> bit of a bowling ball. Um, but clearly he had success at he had some success at Kansas, fell behind Puka Williams. So, you know, you don't discredit him for transferring to, to get a better opportunity. So I think when you go from when you go from McLeese, who 
he by the end of his career we knew exactly what he was and um and then McLeese and you know true freshman king who realistically physically wasn't ready to take on a huge role this year you go from that pair to hopefully a bigger year older king and, and a senior and herbert um i think that's a different running back room and a better running back room you touched on lee as a the juco transfer is a bigger power back um that's depth but i think the number the one and two guys are going to be king and herbert you know if you had to divide divide up the carries and all that right now the vast majority are going to go to those two and i think that's a big upgrade yeah and i think i'm just excited in general because when you looked at the room heading into last fall you see okay Keyshawn King, nobody knows what he's bringing to the table. Taj Gary, injured. Caleb Stewart, redshirted. Terrius Wheatley, coming off shoulder surgery. Cole Beck, literally runs track. You know, there wasn't a ton of options that you can point to and say, look, these guys can come in and maybe be rotational guys outside of McLeese and Holston, who gets hurt very early on. I think when you look at this upcoming offseason, and of course there's going to be a bunch of attrition, there's just way too many bodies right now in the running back room, but at least for the time being, for the spring, you're going to have a lot of guys competing with one another. Marco Lee versus a guy like Caleb Stewart versus you know Jalen Holston three bigger backs that only one of them really gets that role. Uh, Khalil Herbert and Keyshawn King, obviously the mainstays, but where does Taj Gary fit in? You know, he had a nice uh, opening to his Virginia tech career when he was inserted. So it, it is interesting to look at all these different names in the running back room and just thinking, okay, this once was a position that, maybe wasn't the strength of Virginia Tech, and it still might not be, but at least the competition is, is gaining some steam. Yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head. And last year, going into this season, it was, it was McLeese and Holston, and then King was like this electric freshman that everybody was excited about, but was pretty sure you're not going to, wasn't going to play a big role because of his size. So, so you were, you were heading into this year with McLeese, who we talked about his injury issues, and Holston has had his injury issues as well. You're heading into the season with two running backs that have not stayed healthy all year. I, I think that was a huge concern for Virginia Tech going into this year, and I don't think there'll be any concern for Virginia Tech going into 2020. I think the big position battle to watch Herbert King, King at the top for who's going to be the, the the lead back, I guess, is the number one. But then it's Holston versus Lee at the third spot. Um, based on his tweets, it sounds like Holston is committed to coming back and, and, and really trying to make an impact at Virginia Tech. So that's good. if he does that, then he's clear competition for Lee um, as a as the bigger back option. Fuente talked about that often during the season this year that they were looking for some way to get bigger and better. They even tried Dalton Keene back there to try that. So they clearly want a little bit of size. Herbert's kind of like that. I mean, he's 205, 210, so he could be that bigger back. But, um, you know, I think a Holston lead for that third spot is the second um, the second position battle, position battle to watch. Last thing I want to touch on with attrition today, 
Andy Bitter tweeted out, Aiden Brown, a former offensive lineman that converted to defensive line, has medically retired. He joins Dylan Rivers, who medically retired. I believe it was last week. And then Will Pritchard, who medically retired last month. And, you know, just unfortunate situations for each one of them. You know, Dylan Rivers, former four-star guy, had his opportunities at outside linebacker playing with Rayshard Ashby. Eventually, his spot was taken over by Dax Hollyfield. Will Pritchard was a redshirting this season. Um, and Aiden Brown never saw a snap after converting to defensive line. So just unfortunate for each one of these guys. And honestly, I haven't seen too many medical retirements out of Virginia Tech players, but they all seem to be hitting at the same time. Uh, these situations are sad or you know, unfortunate, um, but they completely underscore or relate to kind of what we've talked about this podcast and that Dylan Rivers' neck issues has to retire from football. Why is Deshaun McLeese going to come back and risk that again um, and be put in that situation? So I think that explains pretty much as a guy who's been banged up all the time why he's moving on. Aiden Brown came in as an offensive lineman. Virginia Tech's defensive tackle position was so thin and so much of a question mark that they moved him over there to just hope that, you know, maybe they find light in a bottle there and can get a defensive tackle somehow out of that spot. So you talk about the importance of Bill Tierlink and Daryl Tapp coming in. It's because the defensive line was in that bad of shape that Aiden Brown who was recruited as an offensive lineman, flipped over to the defensive line to try and help out. So, um, unfortunate to see them retire. Um, Pritchard's the guy, I think he had concussion issues. Um, so that's really unfortunate to see that. But, you know, that's these are situations where these guys, they didn't transfer out to, to try and force it somewhere else. So they'll be... You know, I think Rivers said he's going to be around the strength and conditioning program this year, so they'll be around the program and all that stuff. I'm sure Pritchard is a redshirt freshman. Um, he's got another three or four years in Blacksburg. will be around the program as well. So hopefully they can, you know, keep their keep some sort of role around the program as they go forward. And I guess the silver lining with all of this is that even though their playing days are over, at least they're kept on scholarship. They'll be able to attend school for free. Aiden Brown, Will Pritchard, uh, free education. That's a I'm, that's a good thing. I'm honestly stunned that the NCAA allows that, considering how bad of an organization it, they are. It seems it, like something that NCAA would not allow, but they seem to have relaxed on that one. You can't get a cream cheese bagel, but you <laughs> can get thousands and thousands of dollars worth of education paid for. Not playing, though, but... Good for them, like in all seriousness, good for them. I hope they accomplish big things. Last segment we'll do some questions. We only have two from last time, but these are pretty big-hitting questions. Let's just jump into it right away. Dirty South Hokie, if we go 8-5 and five again in 2020, will that be it for Fuente, in your opinion? Yeah, so it gets complicated here in terms of what eight and five looks like. Um, 
So it's hard to say, like, absolutely no doubt. Eight and five, he's gone. Um, I lean, I would lean towards yes, if that's the mark. In in 2020, I wrote um, a couple weeks ago about what this year means for Fuente, and it's the culmination of what the program went through in 2018, 2019, was for 2020 and 2021. Everyone around the program has had their eyes on these two years since, you know, the 2017, 2018 recruiting class came in. So it's, it's time to put up or shut up, whatever you want to call it. They've, they've got to take that next step towards, towards winning the coastal basically next year. I don't think that's, you know, I think if they play UVA again for a spot in the coastal and lose, that's not necessarily automatically reason to fire him. Um, You know, but at the same time, is he seven and five going into the bowl game? Is he eight and four? Does is it something like this year where they start off something like two and two and then rip off a bunch of wins at the end of the year, where you're like, this team's got a whole lot of momentum going into 2021. You just don't know what 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 that eight and five would look like. But I would say, yeah, I could see that the pressure being being on them to the point where they make the move. The, the point I made in my article a couple weeks ago was that Virginia Tech has been looking at 2020, 2020 and 2021. So if you keep, if it's another down year, so to, so to speak, you're basically a lame deck co- coach going into 2021. You're probably not recruiting very well. It's, you're starting to run into push setting the program back where the new coach theoretically comes in in your 23, 2024 before he can get it back on track. As opposed to if you go eight and five or seven and five, whatever it is this year, and you make the change with you bring in a new a new staff with you know a Hendon Hooker as a senior quarterback, a Kashawn King as a junior, Tavion Robinson as a junior, James Mitchell as a senior, all this all. The, the guys who make up the core of the team this year would be back as seniors in 2021. So if Fuente can't get it done this year and it looks bad enough, you absolutely make that switch and see if a new coach can can kind of jumpstart it with the remaining players left from the core. Um, clearly that would be not ideal um, to go 7-5, 8-5, and five, eight and five whatever it is again this year. But I, I think at that point, five losses again with what's coming back, I think it would be heavily considered. When I looked at 2019, the most objective way possible, I said, this is an eight and four team. Of course, I did not expect the Duke loss the way it happened. I didn't expect, you know, some of the other ones that Notre Dame was so close, didn't expect UVA. So I can't say the means in which Virginia Tech got to eight and four, I expected. But overall, it seemed to me that they were an eight and four team. Heading into 2020, when you take into account everything they're bringing back, when you take into account everything that's going on with the coastal right now and how different schools are going through different coaching changes, whether they're going through, you know, a complete rebuild, uh, losing guys that maybe were key contributors that are either declaring for the draft or 
you know, just graduating as seniors. That hasn't happened to Virginia Tech. Deshaun McLeese is the one name that has declared for the NFL draft. Caleb Farley already said he's coming back. Damon Hazelton, you feel like if if he were to go, he would have done it by now. So you have this core of really, really good talent, and you have a lot of familiar faces on both sides of the ball. So I think as objectively as possible, I think – 2020 is the year that you're expecting a nine and three, a 10 and two season. I think anything less than that, it raises serious questions about Justin Fuente and his ability to bring Virginia Tech to the peak that a lot of people remember, you know, 10 win seasons that is possible at a school like Virginia Tech with how much the coastal is in flux. I think the final point that I want to make Eight and five is a very tricky line. I think if it were lower, yes, I think eight and five, like you said, there's various ways you can get there. You saw that this year, uh, you know, heading into UVA and then all of a sudden you lose the next one. You go from eight and three to eight and five. Um, But the final thing is just I think there's so much on the line these next two seasons and Whit Babcock definitely knows that. And I don't know if he wants to completely blow it up when he's waited this long. At the same time, if it's just if it's like the Duke game, if it's another Virginia uh, win in the Commonwealth Cup, I, I you know, in addition to some other results, I think that's when you really have to take a long, hard look at it and say, is he the right man for the job? Yeah, two things. First, if the way he comes back at eight and five is if the defense is lights out, which he turned over on the coaching staff this year and the offense is what's struggling. And he now has the wiggle room to make the changes on the offensive side of the ball too. I think that could buy him some time where maybe Babcock would say, you know, Fuente, you're, you're the offensive guy. That's, that's all on you. Um, so that's, that's one situation where I could see him wiggling away back at eight and five, seven and five next year. Um, the the other thing I think talking about eight and five specifically is players are smart. Like they know like the stakes of the program and all that stuff. And they know, and they want to be really good too. You know, they've all been building towards this 2020 year. They went through six and seven in 2018. They went through this year to build towards 2020, depending on what that looks like. Five losses could be very hard for the for Justin Fuentes to overcome as far as keeping the locker room. I think I think six and seven clearly tested the locker room. And we've heard all about that players only meeting that they held that cleared the air and Fuente, you know, repaired everything. And then he comes in to this year, goes two and two, and then makes coaches a little tougher there and turns the program around. But if, you know, you go seven and five again next year, I think there's definite doubt within the program from the players again. And I think that would be hard to overcome in particular. I will say if it's seven and five with, games such as Middle Tennessee State, Liberty, North Alabama on the schedule. I do have to agree. Seven and five is very tough to come back from. That's okay. One more point on that then. (laughs) Now that I remember what my article was, the schedule next year is 
you mentioned the three games that should be that should be wins there, but also Penn State at home, Miami at home, UVA at home. Three monster home games. Penn State's probably not a must win, but you know if you lose, if you go one and two or zero oh and three in those three home games, um, that's not going to be pretty, considering how desperate people are to to have a good football program and to do that you have to win your home games. Lane Stadium hasn't been, you know, the fortress that people people still give it credit for 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 years and there's a huge opportunity next year to take advantage of that with with a huge home schedule. And I think, you know, if you go up against Penn State, Miami and UVA don't do well, I think that's gonna be pretty 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 damning for Fuente in terms of what his future holds if 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 you can't have success in 2020 with what's coming back and that kind of home schedule those three big home games you got you got trouble I gotta say I'm super excited just even talking about this for 2020 but let's reel it back to 2019 next question out of (laughs) out of towner five what was Jay Ham's impact on safety play this year? I respond. This was a topic on the board, I think, a couple weeks ago, or not a couple weeks ago, like last week. But I think it was his first year as the safeties coach. So between Diablo and Floyd, they went from Galen Scott in 2017 to Tyro Nix in 2018 to Justin Hamilton in 2019. If you had a quarterback who went from offensive coordinator number one to offensive coordinator number two to offensive coordinator number three in three years, it it happened to the kid up at Boston College. Every story that got written about the Boston College was offense is about how he's a good quarterback, but he's had three offensive coordinators in three years. Like You can't expect much when when his coaches are turning over that much. So I think, I think over the last three years, particularly Floyd, when you consider how good he was and how good he looked in 2016, 2017, really got hurt by the turnover and coaches there. Um, and, and probably Diablo too, as a guy who came to tech as a wide receiver, played his first year as a wide receiver and made the switch um he's a guy that if you're gonna make that switch you need a coach who is you need a consistent coach who can develop you and I don't think they've gotten that over the last three years so I don't I don't pin Hamilton's I don't pin this play of the safeties on solely Hamilton this year um based that's I don't think that's a judgment on his ability to coach safeties at all I think it's more of the fact that They've had three coaches in three years, um, and that's hard on anybody at any position. Um, so I, I actually expect Diablo in particular, if, if Hamilton's going to keep the safeties, to be much better next year. The one point I want to add about Justin Hamilton, you make very solid points. With Justin Hamilton, that was his first season coaching the safeties. He worked as the director of player personnel on the defense but that was to get acclimated with what Bud Foster wants to run. You know, he's going through his first practices. 
but it has the scheme in place. There's not too much creativity to throw, you know, to, to add influence to that safety position in terms of Justin Hamilton. You know, he's going through his first practices and whatnot, but overall it's very dependent on what Bud wants to do, how he wants to game plan, how he wants to attack certain defenses. And it's really up to Justin Hamilton to kind of receive that information and present it to the safeties. I think, you know, as a defensive coordinator next year and and being able to work with the safeties and it's his plan and what he wants to do, that's when we're able to judge him because it's his influence on how he wants to treat the safety play. Yeah, so he basically goes from coaching under Bud Foster his first year, basically carrying out what Bud Foster, what he knows about Bud Foster's defense and um, what he knows Bud Foster wants him to coach safeties like. And, and now he goes... As the defensive coordinator, he takes the reins. He sees the full picture of the defense and can coach accordingly from there. Um, so I, I think I I expect safety play to be much better in 2020 simply because he's back for another year as a position coach, and I'm sure he's he'll probably be a better safeties coach in year or two, and I'm sure he'd tell you that too. Um, but I think just having that continuity at that position is going to be big. Last question before we go. How do you feel about the nickname TNT for Daryl Tapp and Bill Terlink? It's, it's decent. It's dynamite. <laughs> I saw... I saw... <laughs> oh, that's... He teed that one up perfectly. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> For all you youngsters out there, that's a little uh, ACDC reference. Um, I'm totally going to play it at the outro, by the way. Nice. That's as you should. Um, yeah, it's decent. I, th- I think tap and tear link, tear link and tap. Um, I, I could get behind it. I'm certainly not looking forward to typing that out over and over again. <laughs> so maybe I'll just start using TNT. Well, any final thoughts on anything that we covered today? There's a lot of topics. I would love to keep talking about this, but we got to save some for the rest of the offseason. Any final thoughts on anything we talked about? I know you got Arvin talking basketball, but what a win uh, Tuesday night in Syracuse. And I'll just say you look at the January schedule, and there are some more wins out there on the on the schedule, um, particularly in January. So big one in castle on saturday against nc state and i'm glad final thought i'm glad that i put a little bit of optimism on virginia tech possibly taking down virginia inside castle coliseum because virginia just lost to boston college so anything is possible it it shows you um that anybody can win on their home floor you know boston college doesn't have the best home field home court advantage they had 12 people there Yes, that, but even even without any semblance of a crowd, um, it's still difficult to win on the road. So you think you got to think that you know playing Castle will help Virginia Tech the next time UVA comes by. All right, Doug, that will do it for us and QACDC. Don't you stop.